0: Welcome to the
1: Change Lab, a podcast for people who are all about personal development, leaning into their potential, and becoming their best self. Just, you know, starting next Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Heinz, and oh, shit. it's Monday. lab mates. Hi, everybody. I love Mondays. It's a new week and we're back in the change lab. Today, I have a very special guest joining us, best-selling author and executive coach, Caroline Adams Miller. Caroline is one of the world's leading experts on the science behind successful goal setting and the use of what she calls good grit to achieve hard things. For more than 30 years, she's been a pioneer in the self-help and positive psychology worlds. Her best selling books, Creating Your Best Life and Getting Grit, offer research based, actionable strategies to help you cultivate more grit and dig deeper to clarify and achieve your toughest and most important goals. But let me introduce you to the Caroline I know and love, the energetic heart behind her very impressive list of accomplishments. So, 23 years ago, which is (laughs) good Lord, more than half my life ago, in 2001. At the absolute lowest time in my life, I read Caroline's groundbreaking book chronicling her recovery from bulimia called My Name is Caroline. You know, my name is Caroline comes from what you say in the beginning of a 12 step meeting. Hello, my name is Caroline. Anyhow, Caroline, like me, had grown up in Washington, D.C., and like me, was a competitive athlete. She was a swimmer, and I was a tennis player. And she had gone to and graduated from Harvard while hiding her eating disorder. And I was in the midst of a early quarter-life meltdown at Harvard, also hiding a soul-crushing eating disorder. And as I read her book, I saw myself in her story, the intense pressure, the quiet suffering, the mask of hiding shame and despair. But she wrote in this book about getting honest and doing the work to overcome her addiction in a 12-step program. She was the brave cartographer who had mapped out an escape route from the hellscape of addiction that I was trapped in. I wanted the recovery she wrote about. I wanted it so badly. And in her bio on the dust jacket cover, it said that she was something called a life coach. (laughs) What the heck is a life coach? So you have to remember, this is 2001. I mean, life coaching wasn't just fringe. It was honestly almost non-existent. So I had no idea what a life coach even was. But what I did know was that speaking with a therapist each week wasn't helping me overcome my addiction. Analyzing... The wise wasn't leading to positive change and I was just desperate. I needed someone to teach me how to recover, how to just live a good day and then string a couple good days together and that's what I needed so badly. And with her fierce belief in my capacity to change and a mandate that I show up with honesty and a commitment to do the things she asked me to do, Caroline showed me how to rebuild my shattered sense of self and construct a new, thriving life one day at a time. And her belief in me and skill as a coach was a profound gift that I am forever grateful for and one that inspired me to become a coach myself. And as fate would have it, we ended up a few years later as colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania's Master of Applied Positive Psychology program, studying under a veritable who's who in the field of positive psychology. And uh, in fact, we were two of the first 32 people in the world to receive a graduate degree in positive psychology. And our friendship and mutual appreciation society has only blossomed over the years since then. There are people who breathe life into our souls And Caroline was one of those people for me. So I hope you walk away from our conversation today with inspiration, zest, and a bit of her unshakable belief in your potential. Let's get to my conversation with my former coach, my colleague, and my friend, Caroline Miller. Hi, I am so thrilled to have you here. This is really special for me. Anytime I get to connect with you is just mm, the best.
0: Yeah, that's how I feel. It's old home day, Sasha.
1: I know. I mean, so you guys, I already said this in my intro, but Caroline was my first coach. You started me on this whole journey. I
0: wanted to be a coach because of you. I just got goosebumps. You're you have exploded with so much charisma and talent and grit. I, I'm not old enough to be your mom, but I feel like your mom. I'm so proud of you. And so being on your show has so many layers of excitement for me. Oh, I know. It's
1: so exciting. Truly, you guys, my first call to Caroline was when I was in college. I was face planting in college. And by the way, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I think it was in the Ebenezer Scrooge episode. But in any case, how growth requires truth. It requires someone actually holding a mirror up to you and being willing to lovingly say, you can do better than this. Caroline, you were yeah. that person for me. I mean, so I called Caroline. I was struggling. And she's like, here's the deal. You're going to do this and this. And you're not going to lie to me. Got it? <laughs> and I hung up on you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can still hear your voice <laughs> echoing in my ears. I said, so you're not ready? And you said, I guess I'm not ready. And yeah. that changed.
1: Totally. And then I well, called you back. You called
0: back when you were ready. Says a lot about you.
1: I will never forget. Uh-. And here we are. It's been so awesome because we've had this whole journey together because we were colleagues at Penn in the first class at UPenn, which was such an exciting looking back. What an amazing year to be a part of that program. Wow. I know.
0: Wow. Right. We were pioneers together in such a cool field. I mean, how lucky have we been, right? Yeah.
1: And I think that one thing that you've brought to bear in all of this work and everything that you do is always been focused as a coach on the research and having everything grounded in research. I think that's the mission for me, certainly, is why have we relegated the most important work of being a human, which is our growth and development, to you know motivational talks and inspirational speeches and kitchen table Ugh. wisdom? which a lot of it is like, you know, sound and good. Yeah, Dale Carnegie had some good stuff, right? Yeah, but there's so much that we've learned and so much to continue to learn that is unfortunately just not applied when it comes to our growth and goal setting. And I think that's where you've just had such a huge impact is on helping women and men, you work with executives to achieve their goals and really bringing the science to bear on their goal setting.
0: Yeah. I mean, have you heard the phrase, I've certainly heard it, that there's a real supply chain issue with the research in academia and getting it out to the public. I mean, it's just kind of stuck for lots and lots of reasons. And so it takes people like us with these applied positive psychology degrees, who are evidence based and remain there to actually bring useful, usable research to the public. And then here's where I think we add total value is we use it on real human beings. We see how do you apply this research so that it maximizes value? And great researchers, I've found, want our feedback. And I think it's a bi-directional thing. We've really improved the field. But yeah, so that's a piece of what I've really tried to do, particularly with goal setting and grit, is take the research on it and bring it to the mass market. And that was my capstone at Penn. It was the first evidence-based goal setting book ever published, still Mm -hmm. ranked number one on most lists of goal setting books. But it's out of date now, and so that's why I'm writing big goals. Wiley's bringing it out in uh, November. But what we were talking about before we hit record is that there are no women's voices at the top of the goal setting field. Yeah, when women are known for goals, yeah. Yes, let's talk about this. Please, let's, dig let's pull in. up chair.
1: Sorry, just so you all know, <laughs> I'm not trying to interrupt Caroline. We have a slight lag, so just bear with us here. But I think this is so interesting because you are a goal-setting expert. And so I want to dig into, just to share with the audience, let's just start with what is goal-setting theory and what do you think are the mm-hmm. myths or misnomers that people have about how to set a goal from your evidence-based mm-hmm. perspective?
0: So it was October of 2005, we had homework on Locke and Latham, and it was on goal setting theory. And I remember after having Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar and all those, even Tony Robbins, Stephen Covey on my bookshelf thinking, I know all about goal setting. I remember saying out loud in Wonderment, standing in Wharton, there's a science to goal setting. And I paid my daughter a dollar a page. She Xeroxed the entire textbook on goal setting theory by Locke and Latham. I went to Drexel and borrowed it. So there is a science to goal setting. It's one of the most validated, robust theories in the field of motivational psychology and management. And what it says is not all goals are created equal and that we get them wrong. And there's really two kinds of goals with one slight variation. There's performance goals, things that I call checklist goals, things you've done before. And so it's five to seven things on a checklist, a maid cleaning a room in a hotel, a pilot checking different things before you take off things that you've done before that have had no variation. That's a performance goal. Those are the only goals where you can say, I will have this excellent outcome by this date.
1: Would an athlete qualify? So someone who's a professional athlete, they have performance goals.
0: They have performance goals and what they need to do in order to get better. Let's take a marathoner who wants to break four hours. So they know how much they have to train, what kind of running conditions suit their running style, whatever. They know what they have to do generally to get around four hours. They want to break four hours. What do they do? They talk to and study. Other people who have broken four hours. They talk to coaches. So what they do is they learn slightly different ways to train how to push themselves. So it's still a performance goal, but they've had to learn this other little sliver of things in order to break that barrier. So it's still a performance goal, but the big secret is most performance goals at a certain point, there's a learning thing you have to build in when you do okay. it again. Learning goals are things you've never done before, actually that the world has never done before. And that means it's called a do your best condition and do your best conditions say that you cannot set a specific outcome or a specific date for that outcome without spending enough time flattening your learning curve. And because people don't know the difference, they often think all goals are are the same. Even if I'm new in this company, new to this field, I'm a quarterback changing teams and I know how to throw a ball, I'm still going to hit the same number of metrics as I did last season with this other team. Not true. If you have to learn, let's say new teammates, new playbook, new, let's say, chat GPT-4 on top of other kinds of data analysis you already do. It's called a learning goal. And if you don't bake in enough time to be mentored in the process of learning, the research shows you will disengage from that goal. And companies mm-hmm. are filled with disengaged workers because we have no mentoring programs, certainly none that work, they're broken. So people are not being given time or even the information that they need to learn how to do this new thing. So the whole world is in a learning goal condition right now and nobody really knows it or talks about it because the world turned so decisively with the coronavirus. I can't find any other period in history other than the bubonic plague in the 13, 14, 1500s. The whole world was touched. Consequently, everything changed, how we buried people, the class system, art, medicine, everything changed. Everyone Mm -hmm. was in a learning goal condition because you couldn't do the same things after the bubonic plague as you did before. We're in the same condition and people are not giving themselves the grace to learn Mm -hmm. how to do new things or the curiosity and the growth mindset to actually tackle new ways of doing things because they're giving up, they want a quick win and that's not gonna happen. So that's the difference. Performance goals and learning goals are very different and when you mix them up, you can have absolute disasters, including death, like Boeing. I've written a case study on Boeing about this and I teach from time to time in the Wharton Executive Education School about this. When you mix them up, when you get them wrong, So many problems happen, including all of us. We would just give up. We'd think we're failures. So that's another extended conversation.
1: Give us an example of when those two things get mixed up. Because by the way, this is probably a revelation for most people that there are two different kinds of goals. There's a performance goal where you can be very precise and you should be very precise about the result and outcome you're looking for. And a learning goal, as you said, which is the do your best condition. You're looking for incremental improvement over time.
0: Right. And Locke and Latham said in both conditions, both learning goals and performance goals, you should set challenging and specific outcomes. You should be pushing yourself in both conditions because ultimately you want a learning goal to become a performance goal. That is the goal, essentially. And so there's so many good examples, but I'm going to give you business world examples. We're staring at it right now with Boeing. Boeing stopped innovating its airplane and Airbus passed it about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when they went ahead and innovated and took the time to learn how to build a long haul plane. Boeing sat there fat and happy with what I call the Habsburg jaw effect. They were inbred, they were intermarrying, and they couldn't produce any new children. And so Airbus passed them by having a growth mindset and basically saying, we are going to take the time, the five to seven to 10 years, to make this plane safe, test it, put our pilots in simulators. And as a result, American Airlines was about to buy all their planes from Airbus. And that was Boeing's biggest client. And so American Airlines said, you're about to lose us. And they said, wait, we'll, develop, we'll just you know, redo this 737. And they skipped all the checks all the safety checks, including they didn't let the pilots go in simulators. And it was all for a bottom line goal. So what they had was a learning goal, learning how to make a new plane, that they turned into a performance goal. We Mm. are going to make a new plane by this date because we don't want to lose American Airlines as, as a customer. You know, voila, several years later, you've got Lion Air, you've got people dying on Malaysia 370. I mean, and now you've got the door blowing off. The Alaska Airlines play. And this is about a culture of skipping steps. This is about a culture where they didn't prioritize learning how to do something right. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to squeeze as much money out of the bottom line as possible. That's just one example. But when you mix them up, You could lose your reputation like Enron or Volkswagen with the defeat device about emissions. I mean, I could go on and on, but you lose your reputation. You can lose all your business. The company could close, or you could just even see people dying like the Ford Pinto, another very famous example of goals gone wild. So you have to get it right from the outset. That's why I'm writing this next book. Because I think if people don't know this, you're setting yourself up from failure from the first minute of thinking Mm -hmm. about a goal.
1: I love this. Goals gone wild. So let's talk about this for a second. From goal setting theory perspective, what are the other pitfalls? Because I think people just sort of assume that all goals are good goals, right? Setting a goal is a good thing. But I do try to remind people that, you know, Hitler was a great goal setter too. You know, you can set all sorts of horrible goals. Goals in and of themselves are neutral. It's the question of what are you actually setting a goal for? So what does it say in terms of, yeah, improving your well-being, what kind of goals improve your well-being?
0: Well, it's really about the Ikigai piece, the Japanese, that which I wake up for. What is the so what to your goal? That's the first thing I always say to people. What's the so what here? Why are you setting individually, at least, and personally, this goal? How does it make the world better? How does it maximize your flourishing as a human being? And how does it improve other people's lives? If it's all about you, I think it's still, it's a 20th century movement of self-help. I think we're in a systems theory approach to well-being where we're really about maximizing everyone's well-being. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not that satisfying. So there's a so what piece to it. Now, in an organization, if you have a goal that's you know assigned to you by a manager, you have to figure out how to make it matter to you. How does it mm-hmm. match your values and how do you align it with what the company is doing? But you have to have this intrinsic motivation that's throwing around self-determination theory. DC and Ryan, you and I know it. But it has to be an intrinsically motivated goal, not your coach's goal, not your parents' goal, not your culture's goal. It has to have that sitzfleisch. That's a Hebrew word for the fire burning inside of you bright that makes you want to do something that keeps you going. Sitzfleisch. Mm-hmm. It has to have that component to it. And let me just throw in I wrote the book Getting Grit. The happiest people wake up to hard goals, not easy goals, hard goals. And if you understand that hard goals are the coin of the realm in flourishing people, finding out what you're made of, going outside of your comfort zone, stretching yourself past your limits, then you got to understand this thing called grit because you can't accomplish hard goals unless you have grit. The two go together. And that's Mm -hmm. why my next book is called Big Goals because if I can lay out goal-setting theory, and the things that you have to know, not all the details, that you have to know to go from A to B to C to D, maximize your chances of succeeding at your goals, these are the things you have to do. Now, you want to dip into motivation and self-regulation, and other things, are lots of researchers on that. Go buy their books. But I'm going to give you the blueprint because I think it is fed into a society of anxious, depressed, people who have big dreams and absolutely no idea how to accomplish their goals. And I think they get disengaged and they give up and they think, I'm a failure. I'll never be able to do those big things. And then they get jealous of people who go for it.
1: Ah, Man, the more you don't go after your own goals, it is just a law of nature. If you don't go after your own goals, you become the resentful, jealous person of everybody else's goals, right?
0: Yeah. And should we talk about women?
1: Oh man. I mean, by the way, that's, I love this big goals because, you know, that's what I say to my clients big bodacious goal. What's your big bodacious goal? Right. But it's interesting how it's frequently met with big bodacious goal feels too much, too massive, too overwhelming. I don't have a big bodacious goal. It's like, okay, well, I'm sure you do. You just haven't allowed yourself to go there for whatever reason. You think you can't accomplish it. You don't have space in your life to do it. You know, perhaps you don't feel that you're able to either carve out that time or that you matter in that way or that you're capable or whatever it is. But I would venture to say that everybody has some dream. I think
0: it's more than that. So the unique thing that I spent six years researching why women don't support other women, I really wanted to get to the heart of that because again, it pertained to goal setting and success. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not that women lack confidence. Women have plenty of confidence. I think what women fear is that they're going to be thrown out of the tribe and shunned and excommunicated if they actually have a big goal and they succeed at it. And that's where women kneecap other women. The oldest form of punishment, painful punishment known to all societies across time is throwing someone out of the tribe. And because we women are wired with this tend and befriend response, Mm -hmm. our biggest fear is that we will be not supported we won't have anyone who has our backs and so we don't give voice to our goals and i think many women have to choose between their mental health and their friendships so they don't Mm -hmm. play big and the research on agentic behavior goal-directed behavior i found this when researching hashtag i have your back is that this is one of the areas in the workplace where women have made zero progress in the last 30 years is agentic goal-directed behavior And the sniping and the undermining and the tall poppy syndrome comes at women from both men and women, and especially from women because you're violating stereotype norms. How dare you have that big goal? So Mm -hmm. I think it's not so much that people don't have big bodacious goals. I think they're terrified to have them and pursue them because they know there'll be all these passive aggressive comments. Shutting them down, not supporting them. And we are terrified of that because of how we're wired chemically.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, man, I agree. I just feel like I want to shout from the mountaintop, like, ladies, you can do so much more than this. Come on. You know, and by the I way, think. like, life is. Hard And I was just saying to Caroline was that we were colleagues at Penn and I had the benefit of being young and not even yet married. So I had all, oodles of time on my hand to do work. I was the student who was doing all the extra credit stuff because I had the time and the fascination to do it. And I was just saying to her, I was like asking, how old were you when we were there? 45. I'm 45 now. I was like, I can't even imagine going through that program at 45 with two children and all my responsibilities three. and work and... Oh, you're two. Oh wait, I, well, my yeah. two, but yes, yeah. like you have three. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. you're not even playing man-to-man defense. You're playing zone defense. Jeez. A zone <laughs> on steroids. And they all had so many activities. But, totally. But here's the thing. They saw me happy. And they knew that something was happening inside of their mother that they'd never seen. And we talk about that now. The role modeling of seeing your mother have a new purpose that lights her up. And I and just to go to more research in the last few years, all these women dying from diseases of despair at midlife, from alcoholism and eating disorders and suicide and depression and opioids and the rest of it, so many of them have not locked into, what do they wake up for? And at 45, my kids saw that I was on fire, this goal-setting theory thing. They saw that I was a woman on a mission, My Mm -hmm. capstone became the book. And not only that, when that seminal meta-analysis came out that all success is preceded by being happy first, that came out during our year, Sasha. That came out in September, October of 2005. Lou Bermersky, Diener, and King. And unfortunately, Diener's dead. But my God, yeah, that was really right. a revolutionary finding. Oh my God, yes. By the way,
1: for everyone's reference, say that to everyone. Explain the profound nature of this finding yeah. to everybody.
0: Well, so you and I went to the same school in DC. At least you went briefly, you know. I was told growing up in this tough dog-eat-dog town that if I got that SAT score, I got into that school, or I played the piano, this thing at that age, or whatever, if I went to that college, I'd be happy. This piece of research by Sonia Lubomirsky, Ed Diener, and Laura King conclusively found and published in the fall of 2005 that all success in life from... Success in religion, success with your friends, success with your weight, success in your job, success everywhere. All of it is preceded by being happy first, by being in a flourishing state. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I got to tell you, I just was on rewind for so many hours during that year thinking, if only I had known that I was chasing something without being happy first, why did nobody pay attention to this part of my development, your development, anyone's development? So those two pieces of research in particular, goal-setting theory and the benefits of frequent positive affect, my kids saw me, I was a dog with a bone running down the street, like the world has to know this because Mm -hmm. nobody's setting goals, right? And furthermore, nobody knows how the science of happiness is connected to it. And I think if I have a mitzvah that I've given to the world, it's my name is Caroline, overcoming bulimia, and then writing about it when everyone was just dying in the 80s. And then my creating life. your best life, giving people the tools. Yeah, thank you. It, and it changed mine to get better from bulimia. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I got goosebumps. Well, it set me on a path of doing hard things. No one was overcoming bulimia in the 80s. It was just dying. Karen Carpenter dying. I was in my seventh or eighth year of bulimia, and I was like... I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life if I live. And I was determined to get better. And that sits flesh, to use that word again, that passion. I, I just got married and it hadn't cured me. I thought it would. 21, it's like, why am I not better? I just changed my life. <laughs> that sits flesh. That, you know, desire to live, to have children. I hadn't had my period by the age of 21. I knew I was on my way to being infertile led me to want to help other people accomplish big goals. Yeah, but you gave me
1: a model of what was possible in the same sort of Roger Bannister, four minute mile way that I had never really connected with someone who had such a similar story to me, who was an athlete, who was driven and had recovered from an eating disorder. And you modeled that for me and you made it seem possible for me. And you had a life that I wanted. You know, you were happily married, you had these great kids, you were engaged in a career that was fulfilling, you loved. And so I'm looking at you thinking, man, I want this so badly. And my life at the time when I met you, that was not the road I was going down. But you modeled that for me. And I think it's so easy to think that we do everything in a vacuum and it just impacts me. But what we model for other people is just so, so important. You know, you made total recovery seem possible.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, and I had some people in the Baltimore area in this 12-step program who were recovering from bulimia. They were my in-person role models. I just ended up being the first person to ever write about it and go public. And so there were people who showed me the way. I wasn't the first to actually get better, but I was the first to get better and hold my hand up and go public and say, we are your sister, your mother, your friend. This is what we look like. This is who we are. We're all around you and we don't like living like this. And we want to get better and we don't always know how. Help us. And here's one way to get better. And you were eager. Look at you. You grabbed onto it. When people are ready to recover from anything, I'm convinced that a circus monkey or a ventriloquist can get them better. (laughs) I'm really convinced that where there's a will, there's a way. And I just happen to be that public role model. And I'm forever grateful for the people who showed me recovery before I wrote that book.
1: Yeah, it's so important. Gosh, I just have so much gratitude beyond. The other thing I really want to point out, by the way, because I think this is important for me, let's not gloss over it, is in the research that happiness precedes success, right? So it's actually a condition that increases your likelihood of, Accomplishing success in various domains. But it's, I think it's really important for us to unpack what happiness means. Cause I think people think like, oh, happiness is feeling good. And what we're talking about, yeah. what Caroline and I are talking about when we're using the word happiness, what we actually mean is <laughs> we mean someone who has high satisfaction with life, which just in shorthand sort of incorporates feeling good, positive emotions feeling engaged, having that sense of flow, feeling engaged in what they do, positive relationships, meaning and purpose, Mm -hmm. and achievement that they're going after, meaningful goals. And that's a part of this cocktail that creates happiness. And so it's unfortunately become kind of reductive in our culture to think like happiness means I feel good. And it does, but the way to feel good requires what we call type two fun, things that are not fun in the moment, but feel good afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one of the reasons why you, I think, have been such a pioneer in talking about grit and goal setting, because without that, it's very hard to lead a life in the long run that you actually feel satisfied with.
0: Well, that research is out there that at the end of people's lives, or even at the end of every day, we scan our days unconsciously for what we're proud of this is Jessica Tracy's research, actually, at the University of British Columbia. And she found that the only things that give people authentic self-esteem are the things we did that day that were hard outside of our comfort zone. And just magnify that or just you know extrapolate that to the end of your life. What if you look back at all you have is coulda, woulda, shoulda? That is not a well-lived life. And so... I think everything you just explained was, you know, dead on accurate.
1: Yeah. Why do you think that women... And I, I tend to agree with you. If you look at the coaching landscape, there are not that many women that I think are focused on yeah. setting big, hard goals, that that would be more of their message. I think there's tends to be more of a softer emotional message for women. Being authentic, finding yourself, finding peace. Like there, that's a different kind of message. I know I'm being very generic. And I think that was my big fear in becoming a coach, right? I was like, is everyone going to think that I'm you know, I should put on a muumuu and coach. like move to a <laughs> beach town or something, right? Like exactly, yeah. just being a life coach. Yeah. But why do you think that women haven't been as prominent in this field? Because there are a lot of incredible women. I mean, look at Barbara Frederickson, Angela Duckworth, Sonia Lumierski, Laura yeah. King. Yeah. I mean, there's. I'm just off the top of my head of people that Katie Milkman, I mean, how many, Aaliyah Crum. Carol Dweck. Sorry, I could go on. There's so many incredible women in the field.
0: I have a list of them. And the problem is none of them have really made it other than maybe Angela onto the big stage, making the big bucks for talking in front of companies or even the world about Mm -hmm. how to do these hard things. A lot of them are publisher parish. They're academics who have to focus on their own little area in order to continue to succeed in the Mm -hmm. worlds they're in. They haven't hold together all the theories and all the different approaches to have a comprehensive way to go from here to here. But there is a bigger problem, I think. And and I I researched this so that I could talk about it with some kind of accuracy and not just an N of one, how do I feel? Mm -hmm. There's confirmation bias and people like to learn from people who look like them. And most of the power, at least economic power and corporate power is still in the hands of men, primarily white men. We've barely scratched the surface of what women have access to in terms of power and money. Although we're in the middle of this great wealth transfer to the hands of money right now. So what confirmation bias says is if a woman is standing on a stage talking to you about goal setting theory, and it's something you should know and you don't know, this is not going to land well with you. Mm. And people don't like to be associated with big audacious things like big goals, because it is unseemly for a woman to be anything other than affiliative, taking care of people, you know, talking about emotions. And this is what I wish Brene Brown did a little differently, because I respect her so much. And she's made such a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's always this you know, rolling over and showing your belly, I'm imperfect, look at the sad things in my life. I didn't succeed here, I didn't succeed there. I would just love to see bold, brave goal setting. I did this and this is what you can do. I think women always have to prove that they're not threatening somehow so -hmm. that women will like them. This is the likability issue. And so when women are like us, you know, we're educated, we're strong, we're bold, we're zestful, we wanna help other people, we always run the risk of pissing other people off, particularly women and also men. So you can't win. You can't win. But I'm not going to let it stop me because I have nothing to lose at this point. Hear, hear.
1: I love it. I mean, I think it's like being human is, uh, is helpful being able to relate to people and help them understand that we all have the same condition. It's called being human. You have a human brain. So do I, that means, guess what? You're insecure and you don't have confidence and you doubt yourself and welcome to the club. (laughs) Like, when people are like, I have imposter syndrome, I'm like, and so uh, so do we all,
0: like everybody. And, and too many women have grabbed onto that, right? I mean, it's too often used to describe women as a syndrome and it's because we feel, I don't know, there's so many arguments about imposter syndrome and why women have grabbed onto it to become just another thing that needs to be fixed. Let's just go for it. Let's just have big goals and go for it and know who has our back in the process of doing so and create mastermind groups where we affiliate ourselves with the right people who are curious and enthusiastic about what we wanna do and they're there to help us. That's what we need to do. Because right. too often, you know, we have these frenemies around us, our mothers, our sisters-in-law, our best friends, whatever, who are going to shun us the minute we succeed in anything.
1: I just, I mean, I happen to have a very awesome group of ladies I feel really lucky to have when we go on hikes and talk about the work that we do and how we can support each other. And I can't imagine my life without it. It's, you know, the Friday morning mm-hmm. brain dump at 6 I, I o'clock have it as too. Well.
0: You know, it's such an important part of my life. But it's something people deliberately form. If you don't deliberately form it and understand the impact of not having it, chances are you're not going to create that group. You might be in a book club, you might be at the PTA, you might, I don't know, whatever. But I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is being asleep at the wheel about the impact of subtle comments. It's like Phyllis Chesler. I was telling you about Phyllis Chesler who wrote Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. She has all these amazing bits of research on this. And she said, women need to be told early to expect incoming fire for the rest of their lives. It's these small Daily indignities or shrugs, I dealt with it. You have to deal with not being invited here or having Mm -hmm. people not like something on LinkedIn when you've succeeded at something, which is something I hear about all the time, you know?
1: I know, I mean, it's so funny. My daughter now is, I was, we were just, our heads were exploding that my kids are at the age that they are since I've known Caroline since I was so young. But- I talk to them about this all the time. I'm like, you know what? Your dearest, greatest friends are ultimately going to be the people that aren't just there for you when the chips are down, but they're there for you when everything's going great. When you're thriving and you're succeeding and you just had a big win, they're the first people to be excited about it. They're the first people to call and say, Oh my got oh my God. Thrilled. I'm so happy. One of my friends tagged me on this. It was like on Insta, going around Instagram and I loved it so much. But it was like, surround yourself with people who drop your name in a room full of opportunities. Yes. Ugh.
0: yes. Like my oh God, drop. yes. How many people actually do that? Because this is the thing about women is a lot of times people will say, But I have all these great friends. And whenever something isn't going well, they're right at my side. They call me up. They show up with casseroles, whatever. But that's what women do. They tend to be friends. They take care of women when things aren't going well.
1: So what Caroline's referring to here, just so you all know, is that there's different stress responses and we all know, fight, freeze, fawn, right? Our stress response, but women have an additional stress response and it's, I think it's Shelly Taylor. Is it Shelly
0: Taylor's research? I think so. Uh, it's that UCLA nurses study from 2000. Yeah.
1: Yeah. and. It's that we have an additional stress response, which is called tend and befriend. That is when things feel stressful and scary, women have a biological drive to band together and protect. Because if you think about this sort of biologically, we were in charge of tending to dependence. And so you can't just cut and run. You have to um, make sure that everybody's okay Mm -hmm. and that you're collecting the little ones that can't fend for themselves. And if you think about this just anecdotally, when women are stressed, what's the one of the first responses they tend to do is to call someone, right? or to reach out to a yeah. friend, yeah, to connect. And men may be less likely to do that. So there are gender differences in the ways that women and men respond to stress. So what she's saying is, yeah, that's the biological drive for women yeah. is to show up with the casserole to nurture, to protect.
0: Right. But we are not adequately calling out the believe and achieve tendency that is missing. And I think it's missing for linguistic reasons. I think it's missing for cultural reasons. I think it's missing for some biological reasons. I mean, I think there's six things I narrowed it down to that I think contribute to our lack of showing up for believe and achieve. So I made up a word to describe the behavior I think we need to see. I'm calling it amplship And I'm defining it as Amplifying the successes and big ideas of other women in front of witnesses.
1: You are, by the way, a very serious goal setter in your own right. It's always been true. It's now the beginning of a new year. What are you working on? What's your big bodacious goal for twenty twenty four?
0: Well, I signed a contract in the hotel of a lobby of a in, in California at Christmas for big goals with Wiley. And so that book is due April 1st and it's going to be published in November. And it's one of the toughest deadlines I've ever had in my life. You know, so this is a performance goal for me, right? Okay, so I've I've written, this is my ninth book. So I know how to do it. I've got to strip my life down to a certain number of like four and five hour chunks of writing. I had to eliminate some of my clients. I have to be really fit. So I upped my lifting with my trainer. I went to all my doctor's appointments. I have already arranged to go in caves where nobody can contact me when I'm on deadline. I know what kind of research I have to do. I know how to organize my notes so that the citations work. So I know how to write a book. There's nothing mysterious about it. It's just going to be very hard. And there's not a lot of room for things not to go right. So performance goal. Oh, and I want that book to be the number one goal-setting book ever published.
1: I'm here for it. Let's make that happen. Thank you for coming and joining. I love talking. I could talk to you all afternoon. We have lots to catch up on.
0: I know. No, we'll we'll do it again. Yeah, come back to the East Coast every now and then. I adore you so much. It's mutual. Thank you.
1: It's really hard to express how poignant it is for me to have the coach who transformed my life as a guest on my podcast. It's just, isn't life extraordinary? So awesome. Caroline taught me that life is not an individual sport. Big bodacious goals require big bodacious support. So here's to believing and achieving together. We all need people who encourage us to wake up to hard goals and celebrate our courageous participation in life your lab work this week. Did you think I was going to skimp on the lab work? No, no way. (laughs) Especially not when my former coach is visiting. I got to really up the ante here. So no way. And information does not lead to transformation without application. So here's your assignment this week. Go to Caroline Miller's website, www.carolinemiller.com and take her goal setting skills quiz. You can find it at the bottom of the homepage of her website. So just scroll down to the bottom and you'll see it there. And again, that's www.carolinemiller.com. I just took the quiz and what was I? I was like an aspirational... I, I, I did not get the highest score. What? So clearly, I need to brush up on my goal setting skills. Yikes. Needless to say, I will be ordering her forthcoming book, Big Goals, as soon as that pre-order button goes live because evidently I need it. And I can't recommend... Creating Your Best Life and Getting Grit Enough. Her other two books are so fantastic. I'll put the link to her website and her books in the show notes. And if any of you all are dealing with eating disorders or know someone who is, get My Name is Caroline. It Changed My Life. Wherever you are in the change process, whether you're contemplating change, whether you're preparing for change, whether you're in that action phase or you're maintaining your change, show up for yourself today and keep going. If we all take responsibility for our future by putting the own up and grown up, we can really change the world. For more dirt on today's topic, make sure to visit the episode show notes at drsashaheinz.com. Or if you have any specific questions, you can shoot me an email at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com or find me on Instagram at Heinz. If you're enjoying The Change Lab, there are three things you can do about it. Subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show with a friend or five or head over to drsashaheinz.com to check out the ways you can work with me and dive deeper into this work. And if you're feeling wild, maybe do all three. Thanks for listening,
0: and I'll see you next Monday.